Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, you know, sometimes around Advent, we do a, uh, we stop our normal sermon series and do a special series for Advent. Uh, but usually when we do that, we stop what we're doing and go into the prophets uh, to look at these incredible promises of the coming of Christ and his kingdom. And we happen to already be uh, in a prophetic book, and we're coming up to a stage in this book that's full of uh, the hope of God's kingdom. And so we're going to keep on in Isaiah uh, through Advent this year with a special note uh, on some of those Advent themes of Christ's coming. And this morning we are on an absolutely stunningly beautiful chapter in Isaiah chapter 35. If you are willing and able, would you please stand as I read God's word? Our reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And they shall see the glory of the Lord, the, Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. And they shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Advent uh, that we begin celebrating today is a season of longing and of hope. It's a season in which we stop and place our focus on what's always true for us in the Christian life, which is that given the Christian view of history, most of our lives are lived waiting, right? That we live our life waiting for God, waiting for him to intervene, waiting for him to fulfill his promises. We live our lives in a place of waiting 
Right? There's all sorts of ways that we can view history. Sometimes we view history as one of continual decline, right? You hear this when you hear people say, man, things are just getting worse and worse. Right? It wasn't like this when I was younger, but things are just going from bad to worse. Right? Sometimes we tell story, the story of history that is just going down and down and down. Sometimes we sell, uh, tell the story of history as one of inevitable human progress. Right? We're just getting smarter and better and wiser, and we're just getting better and better and better. Right? Other times it feels like history is chaotic, right? that it has no meaning, that we're just enduring events, you know, some advances, some setbacks, but overall just senseless chaos. But from the Christian view, we live in a story of God's redemption, a story of him bringing the world, not inevitably due to human progress, but through his own grace and love and mercy, bringing us from darkness to life, from death, from, sorry, from darkness to light, from death to life, from bondage to freedom, and it's God's doing, and we're waiting on him to continue his work. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent uh, the weeks before what would be his last advent in a Nazi prison cell, a couple of weeks before advent of 1943, and he wrote a letter to a pastor friend of his thinking about advent from a Nazi prison cell, and this is what he wrote. He said, a prison cell in which one waits, hopes, and does various unessential things, and is completely dependent upon the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside, is not a bad picture of Advent. He lives in a world where he knows if I'm going to be free, it's not going to be because I figure out how to do it, that I defeat my guards, that I break out of prison. Freedom is going to come from a door that has to be open, not from the inside, but from the outside. And that is our human condition. It's what we testify to at Advent, that we wait for that door to freedom to be opened, not through our own ingenuity, our own ability, our own spirituality, but to be opened by God himself. So much of the history of God's people has consisted in waiting God's people waited in Egypt for his redemption. They waited in the wilderness for him to lead them to the promised land. They waited on a king who would come. They waited on God's rescue. They waited in Babylon. In Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah turns his pen to this thing that Israel's waiting on. God to open the door. God to lead them out. Just like he did for their ancestors when he led them out of Egypt through the wilderness towards the promised land. Isaiah is looking ahead now to a time when God will judge their captors and lead them this time out of the lands of their captivity, Assyria and Babylon, towards a renewed earth, a renewed promised land. The story of the Exodus is one that becomes one of those Bible stories that frames the whole story of the Scriptures. Right? It's a story that's big enough that God's people kind of always find themselves in it, and you and I always find ourselves in it. It was the story in Egypt that established who Israel was and who was their God. Remember the Ten Commandments. God begins, he introduces himself, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's the God that I am. It's a new exodus that Isaiah looks at here. An exodus not only away from their earthly captors, 
but into an entirely renewed world. And it's this new exodus, this new exodus imagery that Isaiah and the prophets use, that the gospel writers and Jesus himself use to describe his work, right? That he comes like a new Moses to lead his people on a new exodus. He uses language like he's binding the strong man in order to plunder his house, to take us out. That he's going to lead his captives and his train and give gifts to us. That he's leading us to his father's house where there are many rooms. And so the Exodus story, this new Exodus from bondage to freedom, from death to life, is Isaiah's story, it's your story, it's my story. And it's a story of incredible good news. A story that can help to frame our longing and to frame our lives according to hope and good news. And so what we want to see here first is that this story of this new exodus is good news. Not just for you and for me, but it's good news for every broken thing in this world. If you notice, uh, Isaiah is using the language of exodus, right? When he talks about leading them out on a highway, on a way of holiness through the wilderness. This is a retelling of the exodus story. But with one difference, well, a lot of differences, but with a noticeable difference that strikes out in the middle of it is that the journey out of Egypt, the journey was through the wilderness. It was a difficult journey. It was a journey marked by wandering and frustration. It was a journey marked by hunger and thirst and fear. And yet this journey, this new exodus, isn't just of a pilgrim people through a wilderness, but it's actually the transformation of the wilderness into a paradise. You notice what he, the, the way it starts, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Right? The, the desert itself is happy about what's happening. The desert will rejoice and bloom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Now, I'm a Florida guy. I was born and raised here. I don't know much about deserts. Right? I, haven't, I haven't walked uh, through, through deserts. Having experienced a lot of time in a desert, my, uh, my mom and her, her parents tell me about the story when they took a road trip to California and drove through Death Valley without air condition. Um, apparently, that's what you people did back in the old days. I don't know. Um, but out there in the heat, talking about just were we ever going to see water? Were we ever going to see the next gas station, the next convenience store? Right? And that's the world of, of the ancient Near East that Israel was led out of Egypt to the promised land, and all around was a wasteland. And yet here, as they go, as they take their steps through the wilderness, it is transformed into an oasis. This isn't just the language of Exodus. It's not just the story of individual people being made free. It's the story of the undoing of the curse. It's the story of the undoing of everything that was broken in the fall. When God uh, sent his people into exile from Eden, and he said, what, now no longer are you going to have access to this garden. Your life is going to be out there in the wilderness where you're going you're to seek to plant crops, but you're going to get back thorns and thistles, and you're going to bear fruit by the sweat of your brow and under the heat of the sun. But as they go on this redemption, it's the re-Edenizing of the entire world. The world transformed to abundance as it was made to be. This is no ordinary exodus. This isn't just Isaiah looking forward to one people coming out of one nation. 
This is Isaiah looking forward to the entire world being transformed by God's grace. And what happens to the people living in it? Look at verse 5. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Right? This is a story of human transformation and healing. Right? This is the story of every broken thing in our bodies and in our souls being made right again through the power of God's grace and His mercy, making, no, making new the world, making new creation, and mending our broken lives in the midst of it. That is good news. And even so, it's worth asking, why is this not our present experience? Right, if this is what Isaiah hoped for, when Messiah comes, this is what it's going to be like. No more lame, no more deaf or blind, right? That, that all of these brokennesses, all of this illness is going to be made new. Why are we sitting here with our broken lives, praying for people in the hospital, praying for our doubts and our addictions and our anxieties? Why is it like this? Well, that's exactly the question that John the Baptist once asked. It is John the Baptist. Remember the, the gospel writers, Jesus himself says that of all the people born of, of men and women, of all the, the natural born people, there's never been anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet, when he was sitting in a prison cell under the thumb of Herod, he sent some of his followers to Jesus, this is after the baptism, this is after the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son and him I'm well pleased. This is after the descent of the dove. After all that, he still sends some of his followers to Jesus with this question, are you the one we were expecting or should we be looking for someone else? Right? Some of you have asked that question. Right? Some of you, you come to church, you're going through, uh, maybe it's going through the motions, maybe it's going with the track of your heart and what you know and what you've done. But deep down, there's this question, Jesus, are you really the one? Or should I be looking for someone else? As I experience the pain of my life, my relationships, my job, my world, my body, are you the one that we're to expect? Or should my eyes still be out looking for something else? And some of us do look for other things. We look for new hope in the pages of the next bestseller. We look for new hope in the latest techniques. We know what it is like John to go, man, I thought, if you were the Messiah, if you were who you say you are, I thought it would be going better for me by now. If you are this one, why am I in prison? And if you remember what Jesus says, he says, go back and tell John what you see and hear. The eyes of the blind are opened and the deaf hear and the lame leap. Right? Tell him what you see, that this is happening in my life, in my ministry. I'm healing the blind. I'm raising the dead. I'm healing the broken. Right? That this, this life, this new kingdom life, the restoration of all things is breaking out. It is starting. It doesn't feel that way when you're the one in the prison cell. right? It doesn't feel that way when you're the one who's still 
blind, Jesus didn't heal all of the blind people. When your body is broken, Jesus didn't heal all of the lame. It doesn't always feel as though this new world is dawning. But we confess by faith that based on what we see in Jesus, right, based on what we see in his life, what we see in his death, and above all, what we see in his resurrection from the dead, that on the basis of what he has done, we trust that he will finish his work. That he who began a good work in us and in our world will see it through until the desert blossoms like an oasis. And we live our life between these two times. Between the start and the finish. Between the first coming and the second coming. Between the taste of hope and its fulfillment. Fleming Rutledge uh, wrote this in a sermon. He's an Episcopalian priest. In a very deep sense, the entire Christian life in this world is lived in Advent because the first and second comings of the Lord in the midst of the tension between the way things are and the way they ought to be. To be a Christian is to live every day of our lives in solidarity with those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, but to live in the unshakable hope of those who expect the dawn. The gospel gives us a story that can make sense of both of those things, the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death and the hope of all things made new. And we live in between those times. God invites you to step into that season, into that time, Lamenting and mourning what isn't as it should be, even as you look forward and hope to the one who makes all things new. This is good news for every broken thing. Secondly, this is good news for the weak and for the wandering, which makes it good news for weak and wandering people like us. The image that dominates this passage is a wilderness blooming an elevated pathway, this road to the promised land. But stretching through it is this parade of people, ordinary people, sinful people, broken people like us, being led by God on this journey. This way that God leads us on, the highway through the wilderness, the way of holiness, right? We know in hindsight is is no other way than Jesus himself, right? Jesus describes himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? That he is the way. He is the path. He is the way that we return to the Father through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. That he is the path that brings us home. If it was up to us to find the path, if it was up to us to walk the path, then we'd be in bad shape. Because sometimes we don't know the way ahead of us. Sometimes we don't know the right step for us to take. We don't know what's good and what's wrong. We don't know the way to get to the home that we were created for. And yet here, Jesus himself leads us and guides us. Look at what he says in verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold your God. Right, some of you 
hear those words and you can see yourself right in them. You know what it is to have an anxious heart. You know what it is to have feeble knees, to feel like your legs aren't strong enough under you, to lead you and to take you. You don't have the strength to go where life's asking you to go. And in that moment, it's good to see the way and to hear Jesus tell you, I've got you. Be strong. Take heart. And how do we take heart? Behold your God. Get your eyes up, right, off of ourselves, off of our own strength, off of our own ability, and get caught up in the vision of who God is, of who God has shown himself to be, that he is God for you, that he is God uh, in the Son come to rescue you, to bring you home. He's poured his spirit out in you so that you don't just see him outside of you, but you know him. Behold your God who comes to save you. Jesus will not let your weakness keep you from arriving home. He loves you too much to allow your feeble knees to give way. He loves you too much to count on your own strength to get you home. But that he comes alongside us and he takes us in his arms. The good shepherd leads us by his voice. When we're weak. And then I love this. You know, he talks all, the, all about if you're, str- if you're weak, take heart. If you're feeble, God's going to bolster you. He says uh, that on this way, there's going to be no predators. Did you notice he said there's not going to be any jackals in their haunts? You're going to be able to hang out there. There's not going to be any lions. So he's going to protect you from the forces around you, the threats around you. But not only that, he's not only protecting you from the external threats, he promises to protect you from your own foolish self. Did you notice that? Look at this. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. That is good news for foolish people like us. Right? Look, he's saying, look, the external threats aren't going to get to you. And your own dumb self isn't going to be able to prevent you from from walking in my way. I am going to come alongside you and lead you and guide you in such a way that as you cling to me, I will get you home. I will get you to my father's house. I will get you to your inheritance. Now, our foolishness in this life can cause us pain, right? Has anybody here ever caused themselves some undue pain through their own foolishness? Right through taking a step that you ought not have taken, through doing something that seems smart at the time. Right? We might on this way twist our ankle. We might step in a pothole. We might try to get off the path. But Jesus says, Look, I know you too well to rely on your own wisdom to get the way there. I know you too well to to rely on the strength of your legs to carry you. So I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to hold you. That the grace that led you out of Egypt, the grace that led you out of sin and unbelief, is the same grace that's going to lead you along the way. You may not know where you're going, you may not know the way that I lead, but you can trust me that I will guide your feeble and anxious heart, I will guide your foolish mind and give it light, and I will get you to your ultimate hope. 
So this is good news for the weak and the foolish. And finally, it's good news for those who mourn. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The end of this journey that God has called us on, the end of our exodus from sin and slavery to life and light is ultimately one marked by joy. Right? This life is a mixture of joy and sorrow, isn't it? Right? This life is a mixture of things that are awesome and incredible, great blessings from God's hand, and struggles. Right? Some of you experienced that just this week at Thanksgiving. Right? Food was great, good to see family maybe. Others of you felt that, yeah, but also we got in a really dumb argument over the Thanksgiving table, and it's the one we've had every year for five years. Or, yeah, the food was fine, but I was alone, and I miss my, my grandma, I miss my family. Right? That it is this, this mixture of joy and sorrow. And yet the hope that Isaiah holds out for us is that from the, perspective of, from the perspective of eternity, from the perspective of where God is leading us, we're going to look back on this life and the sorrows will have been only fleeting. They would have been the darkest thing we've ever known, but they will pale in comparison to the glory ahead. And all of the joy that we experience in this life will prove to just be a, a, a small foretaste of the fullness of joy that awaits us in our Father's house. Paul understood this, Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Right? Notice what he says. He doesn't say, oh, your suffering's not so bad. Right? Oh, your tears aren't so bad. Oh, what you've lost didn't really matter. He's saying, no, no, no. In this life, it matters. Your tears matter to God. But compared to the glory that's to come... It pales in comparison. They're not worth comparing. The psalmist in Psalm 30 puts it this way. Weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Right? In this life, there's no guarantee how long our nights of weeping will last. Right? We'll go through seasons. Seasons of weeping. Seasons of joy. Seasons of loss. Seasons of blessing. But cosmically, in the grand scheme of things, the night of this world's weeping yields to the joy of the morning that will come when Christ returns. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? How can there be blessing in mourning? Right? How can there be blessing in tears? Well, it's in our mourning and in our tears that we acknowledge that this world is not our home. This world, such as it is, is broken and marred. This world is a world where we will have things that are worth mourning. But, but, those who mourn in Christ, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They acknowledge that this world cannot satisfy in its broken state all of our longings. But Christ can. And in his kingdom, there will be no more weeping or sorrow or death. 
So friends, let's enter with our whole hearts into this Advent journey, into this Exodus journey from darkness towards light. Let's lament what's broken in this world, lifting it up to God. But let's let hope be kindled in our hearts that we can trust our Savior who leads us on His way, that He will not abandon us, that He'll strengthen our feeble knees and encourage our anxious hearts and guide our foolish feet on His way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that you are for us our way and our truth and our life. Lord, we thank you that when we lived in the land of darkness, that you caused a great light to dawn. That when we lived in a land of slavery to sin, you came to redeem. Lord, that when we had wandered from our Father's house, you came running to welcome us home. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope that we have that though our journey in this world might at times be difficult and we may not know the way to go, that we know the God who guides us, that we know our Savior who died for us, who rose to new life, and who's poured his spirit into our hearts to comfort and guide us. And so, Lord Jesus, give us hope. Lord Jesus, light our way. And Lord Jesus, help us to cling to you in joyful faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.